Today on Against the Grain. A hallmark of our age is feeling we're perpetually struggling with time. Not having enough of it to accomplish seemingly endless tasks and obligations while swimming in a sea of distractions. Can we cope if we learn, following the gurus of time management, to become ever more disciplined and productive? Or does that just feed into a capitalist logic that doesn't benefit us? Journalist Oliver Berkman joins me to talk about the perils of time management orthodoxy. From the studios of KPFA in Berkeley, California, this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. I'm Sasha Lilly. None of us can single-handedly overthrow society dedicated to limitless productivity, distraction, and speed. But right here, right now, you can stop buying into the delusion that any of that is ever going to bring satisfaction. So writes Oliver Berkman in 4,000 Weeks, Time Management for Mortals, published by Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux, in which he looks at the notion that if we just organize our time right and have sufficient discipline, we'll be able to have it all. Berkman is an award-winning writer for The Guardian. Oliver, there are copious volumes out there about how to deal with the time predicament we find ourselves in. What problems do you have with those who counsel us, using whatever system they happen to be promoting, to gain mastery of our hours. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's the point. The, the problem is this notion that we could ever achieve a certain kind of mastery or control over our time, feel that our lives were in perfect working order with respect to time, if that means, you know, feeling on top of everything, dropping no balls, fulfilling every obligation that anyone could throw at you, uh, doing every activity that is on your bucket list of things you might like to do. It's not necessarily, I mean, plenty of time management advice has good use if you can just put it into practice in a very uh, sort of simple, down-to-earth way. But if what you're using it for, psychologically speaking, is to shore up this notion that one day you're going to be able to feel like you've got the upper hand, you're in the driving seat, whatever the metaphor you want to use with respect to time. I think that's what keeps us on this treadmill uh, that we never ever, you know, it's always going to be in the future. It's always going to be tomorrow or next month or next year that we feel this kind of calm security because actually we are deeply finite individuals and so attempting to do an infinite amount is, um, is a project that's doomed to failure. And one of the things that you argue is, and in our, our rush to become more productive, that ironically, the more you get done, the more you now need to do. And we're all striving for more productivity, but actually the more productive we become, the more work we're stuck with. Right, it seems to be a sort of a rule of efficiency that if you make any system more efficient, more capable of handling more inputs uh, in a quicker, in, a, in less time, but you do that in the absence of any other guiding value about what things are important to do, you're just going to get busier, right? So if you get really, really good at answering all your emails, I can say from personal experience that what happens is you get many, many more emails because each reply that you send, you know, there's a good chance that there'll be a reply to that reply and on forever. Um, and you'll get a reputation as being someone who's responsive to emails. So more people will take it upon themselves to email you. I, I love getting lots of emails from uh, readers and other people, I want to be clear, but, but it's, not, uh, uh, it's not a task that uh, it's realistic to ever seek to be on top of because of that, because of that effect. Um, you know, if you, get, if you get the reputation in your office as being the one who can um, process work projects faster than anyone else, uh, what do you think is going to happen? You're going to get um, your bosses or, you know, is going to give you more things to give you more things to do. Uh, it's a bit like when they try to um, reduce traffic congestion by adding an extra lane to 
a freeway, right? And then actually what happens is that incentivizes more drivers to use that route and the congestion returns to what it was before. So if all we're doing is following this notion that it's good to get a lot of things done without any serious thought to which things are more worth doing than others, then it's kind of inevitable that any sort of productivity technique that we apply to that situation uh, is, is just going to make us busier and more stressed and more overwhelmed. You write that one way of understanding capitalism, in fact, is as a giant machine for instrumentalizing everything it encounters, the Earth's resources, your time and abilities in the search of future profits. To what degree does our modern plight and our neuroses about getting work done how much are they a reflection of the system that we live in, this focus on productivity just being one dimension of that? I mean, I think that's a huge, huge part of it. And one of the challenges writing this book was I wanted to offer some way of thinking about this that might psychologically liberate people somewhat from this situation. And I think that kind of book, that kind of approach is always uh, vulnerable to the criticism from the left, basically, that says... Um, like, this can't be solved on an individual level. Um, this is, the problem is this sort of pathological socioeconomic system in which we find ourselves. And my answer to that, predictably perhaps, is, is like yes and no. I think these pressures to get more done and, to, and the, the sense in which security, economic security or kind of psychological security is dependent on a constantly shifting bar, uh, this is something, you know, so it's always out of reach. This is something that is baked in to capitalism, consumer capitalism, especially the, 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 the goals and the needs of that system are not that everyone should buy a couple of things and then be happy with what they've got. Uh, but that there should always be um, economic growth, that there should always be um, more um, money changing hands. I think that where I sort of object to the notion that this is all just capitalism and all we can do is wait for uh, changes to um, the system in which we find ourselves is that you don't have to go along with this, right? You don't have to collaborate with the notion. If impossible demands are being made on you because of your job, because of the economy, because of any other things in your life, you don't have to go along with the idea that you could ever actually find a way to do the impossible which would then entail you spending your life in this kind of constant quest to get more and more efficient, more and more effective at, at processing more and more tasks. Um, you, can, you, you can understand psychologically that it is impossible to try to win this infinite battle. And lots of people are then going to be in a position, having understood that, to make some different choices in their lives and maybe to decide to work less or work in a different way or um, even change jobs. Some people may not be in that position. They may have no choice whatsoever but to carry on with the ridiculous job just to keep a roof over their heads. But at least they will have seen the truth of the situation and won't be sort of collaborating with the notion that they ought to be able to do something impossible. And I think there is a certain kind of um, psychological peace of mind to be had in, in understanding that even if, you know, the, the economic system remains exactly as unremitting as it was uh, before you had that realization. Do you think that the concerns around time that you're touching on are especially problems of the professional managerial class, that is the middle class? Because of course there are people, especially on the lower rungs of society, who might like more work than they have, whether they're unemployed or working jobs with too few hours, as is often the case for many low-paid service workers. While you can see these time problems affecting people across the society, do you think it affects some classes of workers more than others? That's a really interesting question, and I think it sort of depends on how you understand the problem. In, in one sense, I very much in this book wanted to focus on universals and I think that the, 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 the finitude of life, the shortness of life is 
a problem for the very busy uh, white-collar executive who feels like they can't dedicate the time they need to dedicate to their white-collar job and also to their family, say. But it's also a problem for somebody in long-term unemployment, right? Because what's the real problem? What's the really dispiriting thing about um, being in that situation? It's that you're using up your limited time in a way that you would rather not. Um, all of these questions would be moot if we uh, had, you know, hundreds of thousands of years to, in which to live. I think that would, as I say, I think that would um, cause some other problems and that it wouldn't actually be a very fulfilling existence if it went on for forever and ever and ever. But so we're all in the same boat in this sense of grappling with how to use finitude and to use whatever choices are available to us to, to, to use, make the best use of our limited time. But then, yeah, in recent decades, you have this very strange phenomenon. I mean, you look at the historical situation, the whole point <laughs> of acquiring wealth or social privilege was so you didn't have to work all the time. It was so you could, you know, I don't know, go, go hunting stags or, or um, dining, in, dining at banquets. Um, you, we now have the situation where the reward, as it were, for rising through the ranks or for the good fortune of being able to enter the ranks at quite a high level is this kind of unremitting pace of work and this incredible pressure and really very high up the income scale you see this sense of people just feeling overwhelmed and overstretched um i think on the level of uh, advice that that's in this book you know I, inevitably it is more focused on the people i expect more to be reading it and um, for people who have a certain room for manoeuvre in terms of how they structure the day and when they begin working and ending work and, and what order they do things in and things like that. But I think this, this basic problem, there's kind of a, there's almost a solidarity in it because we are all in this economic system that seems to make impossible demands. We are all facing this human condition that we have like a few thousand weeks in which to live, even though we can sort of imagine infinite things and have infinite ambitions, we can't put infinite ambitions into practice. So it definitely manifests in different ways. It's definitely more painful the way it manifests um, at the lower rungs of the, of the ladder. But there is something very universal here about finitude and grappling with the limitations that just come with being a human. Oliver Berkman is my guest. He's the author of 4,000 Weeks, Time Management for Mortals. I'm Sasha Lilly, and this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. So how did we get to this place? Human life, of course, has always been finite, but what happened that changed how humans saw time? Well, something clearly did happen. I don't think it happened all at once, because I think that uh, you can point to parts of you know the ancient world where people had a very modern view of time and then uh sort of similar to the to the mainstream view of time now and then i think you can point to some uh societies uh today that that um relate to time in a way that that you know it's not old-fashioned but it looks like it belongs to uh the past because it's not so prevalent today in the book i talk about a sort of transition happening roughly consistent with the industrial revolution, industrialization, and before that, uh, you know, a few centuries, the invention of clocks, um, you get this broad change. And it goes, from, it, it goes from a situation in which time is just the medium in which people's lives unfold uh, to, to this sense that time is a, is a resource, is, a, is a, a thing that is separate from you. Maybe you may imagine it as a clock or a calendar or a yardstick that runs alongside your life or something like that, um, that you have to keep up with or make best use of or that you can sell portions of uh, when you sell your labor. Um, if you had said to an early medieval English peasant farmer, you know, wh why don't we, uh, you should be more effective, you should be more efficient. I've got a productivity technique for you. Why, why don't we try and do like, do all the milking of the cows for this month? in one big batch today. I mean, that's self-evidently a, a ridiculous notion because the rhythms of that kind of lifestyle um, just necessarily dictate 
um, uh, dictate your relationship to time. You're just sort of yoked to time in this, in this total way. And so while I'm certainly not suggesting we go back to living like medieval peasants because they had lots of other much bigger problems, one problem they didn't have was this sense of feeling harried by time because um, you're just so fully in it that the idea of maximizing it or feeling bad about wasting it or anything like that uh, just doesn't apply. I think that people today sometimes experience a little bit of this, um, especially one, one example, won't apply to everyone, but one example is sort of being the parent of a newborn baby, uh, which is an experience that absolutely demands that you just go with, like you, you do the things that need doing at the times that they need doing and sleep happens when it happens and doesn't when it doesn't. And you can't possibly... Um, schedule that uh, at least in the in the early months and so we have we know what this feels like right this sense of um and that's obviously an extremely tiring and stressful and sleep deprived moment in people's lives but it isn't i think usually as long as you're not expected back at work two weeks after giving birth or something it isn't in itself a time problem right it's falling back into the the time that is our lives instead of this sort of alienated perspective that governs us in, in work and, uh, and elsewhere today. You write that one of the things that we struggle with is that we live in a society that provides us with so many possibilities, so many possible lives in effect that we could lead. I mean, some of that may involve consuming things, but nonetheless, there's a multitude of possibilities. And there's even new age sort of philosophy about having it all and doing it all. But you're saying that our lives are very short. And in fact, that forces us then to need to choose. Why does that lead to such conundrums for us in trying to grapple with that? Do you think partly it's that we generally avoid the notion that our lives are short and you know passing all the time? Yeah, I think there's a wonderful solace, isn't there? And a sort of a, a kind of emotional avoidance in the notion that we, we could, um, we're, that we're on track to a, a life where we can do everything, that we don't have to close up any, any possibilities. It's a, it's, a, it's a sort of, in the short term and in a shallow way, it's lovely to think that, um, you know, I'm going to get to do all the things I want to do and I'm going to get to the end of all my work projects and, and all the rest of it. Um, it's uncomfortable to face the truth. And really, you know, yeah, I mean, I think life is short. There's maybe we will manage to extend our lives by, significant, by a significant degree um, through, through science in the coming years. But the real point here is just the lack of fit, right, between being finite and having infinite hypothetical possibilities of both, you know, the negative kind, obligations and duties, and the positive kind of, you know, um, uh, opportunities and ambitions. Uh, there's, there's, just a, there's just a lack of fit, and it's uncomfortable to confront the fact that this lack of fit exists. So I think an awful lot of what we do when it comes to managing our time and lots of other behaviours that we engage in are really efforts in avoidance of avoiding the uncomfortable truth. And I think at least some time management gurus and productivity gurus are basically enablers of this. They're the people who uh, people saying to the person with an alcohol problem, um, have another drink and forget about it. And does that apply equally to those who might decide, OK, I'm going to shorten my work week and travel the world. I'm going to have as many wonderful experiences as possible. Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, I think it's really important to say this is about, um, it, it's sort of, I'm sort of agnostic on like how, what things people would want to spend their ideal lives doing. It, it's that we take this kind of uh, limitation denying approach regardless. So actually, you know, um, if, your if your plan is to uh, get through an impossibly long bucket list of wonderful experiences. Um, you may have a nicer life in certain ways than the person who feels they've got to get through an impossible list of tasks to not be fired from their bad job. But the pattern is, 
it's essentially the same, right? The, the attempt to do something that isn't possible still applies. And so you get this phenomenon that, that in the book I sort of jokingly call existential overwhelm, which is this sense that um, the world has so much to offer in terms of experiences and possible lives that you could live that if you really try to you know, suck the marrow out of life, you're, in that sense, you're going to always feel shortchanged because you have this tiny little bit of, of life. And I think that's a real, um, it's a really important thing to remember because it's then, once you have sort of surrendered and given up this impossible quest to get through a, a bucket list of a thousand items, or, you know, that's when you can turn to the real experiences of life and actually do a few have a few amazing experiences, travel to a few amazing places, you know, without feeling hounded by uh, all, the, all the neglected potential avenues. One thread that runs through your book is the trade-off that we tend to make between trying to have all this control over our time so that we can be most efficient, that we can please our boss, and have economic security and also have times for things or maybe our side projects, things that we want to do. And so this constant focus on, on juggling this and, and being able to control time, that there's a tension there, in a sense, an inverse relationship between trying to sort of hoard our time from those who might encroach on the time that we have. And a different need, which is to connect with each other socially, to be with others, others who might, you know, of course, encroach on our time. Can you explain that inverse relationship and why you think it's so important in terms of what is getting lost right now with our focus on trying to be as efficient as possible? I mean, I think, I think part of what you're getting at here is the the way in which the ethos of the sort of ideal uh, relationship with one's time that we're told it would would be uh, it would be perfect to have today is is one of sort of total individual sovereignty you would get to decide exactly when you worked you you could um you, you could uh, you know when you're when you take time off the whole thing would be up to you and you get this sort of manifested in this idea and real lifestyle of the digital nomad, right? People who um, take their laptops and work from whatever cities they feel like working in and, and travel the world in a way that is completely unconstrained by um, other people's demands or rhythms. And what digital nomads will tell you is that they're often really lonely because so much of what's worth doing in, in life requires not just that we have some time, but that it's time that is synchronized with with other people. Um, so all sorts of forces are sort of causing us to be desynchronized today. Some of them look like privilege, like being able to travel with your laptop or work on a freelance basis like I do and sort of in a self-employed way that, that is freer than, than other forms of employment. Some of them look like the opposite, like being working for a clothing store or a, or a big box retailer that has you on a sort of ad hoc computer-based scheduling system that could call you in at any moment uh, and you never know whether you're going to be expected to work from one day or one week to the next. All of these different forces have one thing in common, which is that they sort of, they, they get in the way of communal rhythms. They get in the way of arrangements whereby a group of friends always does the same thing at 7 p.m. on a Wednesday night or a local organization or club meets. Um, partly this feels like an argument for, in certain respects, a return to tradition, right? Because um, embodied in the idea of a, of a Sabbath, most obviously, is not just that we should take a day off a week from work, but that it should be the same day as everybody else. And you find this extraordinary, these extraordinary results from, from research in Scandinavia, I'm thinking of right now, where um, people, in, people are happier, not just when they are getting enough time off work, but when it's the same time as 
the other people in the country. Sort of whether they know those people or not, in a way, it's just, is there a sort of a communal nationwide rhythm that says, you know, this is rest time right now. And, and so there are, it's an awkward and fraught question because a lot of policies that I would, you know, instinctively absolutely want to support, like family-friendly, flexible, homeworking policies, which have so many plus points, if they're pursued in isolation without any concern for this kind of communal rhythm, it's just going to have the result of making us all more and more atomized, I think, and more and more pursuing our own uh, schedules that never link up with anybody else's. You're listening to Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. I'm Sasha Lilly, and today I'm speaking with Oliver Berkman. He's an award-winning writer for The Guardian, author of 4,000 Weeks, Time Management for Mortals, which is published by Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux, and which you can find a link to in our website, againstthegrain.org. So let me ask you more about the demands on our time, the things that can often make us feel, I mean, you, you argue on the one hand that we really can't uh, strive to have complete control over our time, but at the same time, we can have some agency that, that often we, we lack, maybe some more of us more than others. But one of the things that often gobbles up our time are the distractions of social media. Can you explain sort of the logic of the attention economy and how it makes money off of actively distracting us? Yes, absolutely. I think it's very important there are two sides to this. There are the people who are making money out of distracting us, and then there are the things in us that are causing us to be uh, willingly distracted. Maybe we can talk about the second one uh, in a moment. But the logic of the attention economy, I mean, I think most people have some grasp of this now, but it is very hard to keep in mind the degree to which the way in which social media and a lot of online media works now is that the money is in distracting you. The money is in compelling your attention by pretty much any means necessary and then selling that attention on to advertisers. And hence the famous observation that, you know, if you're not paying for a product uh, that you're using digitally, then, then you are the product. You're, you're the, the, the business model is, um, is that it's taking your attention and, uh, and selling it on. And, you know, they'll stop at nothing, certainly nothing legal, to, to do this in two ways. Firstly, all sorts of um, very advanced, persuasive, so-called persuasive technologies, which are designed to be more compelling than others. One little example is the... Um, the drag down to refresh gesture on, on smartphones where you, where you sort of pull the screen down to see if there's anything more waiting for you. Um, you could implement that function in many different ways, but this is the one that keeps people, uh, you know, uh, compulsively coming back and, and swiping and swiping. Uh, and that's been studied because you're providing real-time feedback every time you do it to the company in question. And, you know, they know what's happening here. As the technology critic Tristan Harris says, um, Every time you log on to one of these services, there are a thousand people on the other side of the screen paid a lot to, uh, to find ways to keep you there. And then the other thing is just in terms of algorithmic content uh, promotion, you are going to be shown the kinds of things that you have demonstrated through your previous actions compel your attention. Not that make you happy, not that, use, not that are useful for your work necessarily, but just that grab your attention, which is often going to mean um, things that make you angry or things that uh, make you scared because that compels our attention. And the result of this, you know, is not just that we waste an hour on Twitter. It's that we get a completely skewed understanding of the rest of the world uh, that we then take into our offline lives as well, whether it's just, you know, carrying on having inner arguments with people you disagree with on Twitter when you're in the shower or something, to, not to, um, maybe that's too much information, but I do find myself doing that sometimes. Um, or it's, uh, you know, just having a sense of the world as being scarier or more polarized or more dangerous or more he heading to hell in a handcart, you know, than it, than it really is because you've been fed the things that 
that really grab you, not the things that necessarily give you a, a true picture of anything. And you write, as you've just alluded to, that that's one half of the distraction machine, so to speak, that people uh, make money off of distracting us. But you also suggest that we choose to let ourselves be distracted from the things that matter most to us because there's some discomfort that comes from engaging with those things. Where does that discomfort come from? I think it comes from lots of places, but I think what they all have in common is that it is the kind of confrontation with with reality and with limitation that I'm sort of tracking throughout this book. What, anything meaningful that you try to do at some point is going to throw up discomfort. If it is a creative project, you don't know if you're good enough, you don't know how it'll be received. Uh, if it is a list of chores, you, you don't know if you've actually got enough time to get through all the things you feel you need to get through. If it is um, a difficult relationship conversation, you know, something you need to talk about with your partner, you don't like feeling emotionally vulnerable, which is what happens when you're having those conversations in an authentic way. You know, all these kinds of activity matter to us and they bring up discomfort. And it's not a coincidence, I think, that, uh, that that's the way it goes. So, it's very understandable in that situation, right, that you might prefer to bounce off to a distraction that has been tailor-made to grab all your attention and take it away from whatever you were experiencing. Um, it, it's, especially online, I think the sort of phenomenology of being online is that you feel kind of unlimited and in control. You can find out what's going on thousands of miles away with no, with no effort. You can be who you want and present yourself however you want. It, it feels a little like being a god. And um, doing meaningful things in the real world and coming up against your limitations and your vulnerabilities, like that's the exact opposite of, of being a god. So I just want to sort of emphasize that I, I certainly don't think we should like let Silicon Valley off the hook in terms of what they're doing to uh, distract us, but we collaborate. And I think the most powerful way to begin to steer a path around distraction is not so much to you know, install web blocking apps on your phone or uh, put, your, put your phone uh, in a block of ice, or I don't know, whatever, don't do that. But you know what I mean? It's actually, it's not the sort of getting the technology uh, limited so much as seeing what's going on with us and realizing that we can um, just, to a certain degree, choose to hang out with that discomfort instead, and not and not always act on it in order to sort of run away from the things that we're that we're focused on. You also argue that tied with this idea that our options are into the future are limitless. You know that in fact, in some way, we're not mortal; that we don't have to choose; that our time isn't limited that that often goes with an orientation toward the future, that we're focused on the future much of the time. Um, but you also note that there are problems with the idea of being in the moment, which is a much ballyhooed solution for our times. <laughs> Can you talk about both of those? Yeah, I mean, I think this kind of instrumental attitude to time where everything we're doing is for some future value, you can't avoid this. I mean, you know, uh, everything we do every day on some level uh, is usually for the purposes of, of, or most of it is usually for the purposes of completing some kind of project. It could be as small as, you know, running the dishwasher or as big as uh, moving house or writing a book or uh, parenting a child. You know, uh, the, we, we care about the future effects of our actions, but we sort of, I think we're pushed to sort of over-invest in this to the exclusion of, of finding value in the present moment doing of what we're doing to the extent that then, you know, as a culture, I think we sort of, we, we focus on the future as where the value of life lies so that it doesn't lie right here, right now. And that is a sort of self-defeating and paradoxical situation to be in because uh, it, it, life is only ever right here, right now. And at some point, You've got to uh, find value in the moment if you're going to find value at all. Otherwise, you're just, you know, you're never, you never reach the future. 
But yes, as you point out, if, if you sort of respond to that situation by deciding that you're going to be someone who's really present in the moment, uh, I've found anyway, it's a, it's a recipe for stress because then you sort of instrumentalize time in a different way and you find yourself saying like, am I, am I focused in the moment enough? I, I, you know, I read that, that uh, mindfulness writer who said I should find I should pay pay attention even to when I'm washing the dishes to the soap and the water on my hands. Am I doing it enough? Am I doing it enough? And that's obviously um, not going to that's obviously not going to work. I think the, the the thing to take from all this is it's more of an understanding that might lead to a different practice than it is about changing your behavior in that top down way. So the understanding is it always only ever is the moment. And anything that you do in your life that is worthwhile to you is going to have to, um, as it were, cash out in a present moment at some point. This is just a given. So all your anxious thoughts about the future are happening in the present. Um, you know, anything you do that feels like you're not present in the moment, you're doing present in the moment. So I think once, once you can sort of internalize that understanding a bit more, it becomes easier, a little bit easier, to sort of drop back down into the here and now and to find some value in even if it's part of a long-term project um in the in the doing of it itself again you know parenting is a great example of this I, of course i would like to raise a son who is successful and happy as an adult but if that's all you're doing it sort of means that the present moment experience is 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 lost is subjugated to the future Writer Oliver Berkman is my guest. We're talking about his book, 4,000 Weeks, Time Management for Mortals. I'm Sasha Lilly, and this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. So you are not averse to giving advice uh, in your book, and I wanted to ask you what you do recommend for people trying to keep their head above water. You've talked about what is problematic and the fact that there are sort of limitations on the degree to which we can control everything anyway. But that also doesn't lead you to throw your hands completely up in despair. Right. I mean, I, I am a little bit averse to giving advice, actually, because I, I feel like it's, it's always tempting to use any such advice as the new solution to building a life of perfect productivity and efficiency and capability. But I think, nonetheless, there are plenty of ways of thinking about time management that that are consistent with this idea of um, finitude of, of seeing the truth about the limitation uh, the limited situation that we that we find ourselves in one of them is just a whole group of different techniques that all have in common this notion that they're going to encourage you to do one thing at a time instead of uh, chase the feeling of being in control of time by having your finger in 20 different pies at once. Um, just to get really down to earth in terms of techniques, when it comes to organizing work, a lot of people find it useful to have two to-do lists. Um, one is a so-called open list where you just put anything and everything that comes up and it could be incredibly long. And the other is a closed list. It has maybe four or five slots on it. And the rule that you try to follow is that you move tasks from the long list to the short list, but you only add a new one when there's a free slot uh, on the closed list to do one. And this is just one example of sort of creating a deliberate bottleneck in the way that you approach things. Another one might be to um, only have like one big goal at a time in each domain of your life, something like that. All these things are doing is just reminding you of the truth that you actually are only ever focusing on a handful of things. So they are encouraging you to make more conscious choices about what those what those things are, um, rather than uh, waiting, uh, you know, constantly chasing the, the feeling that someday you're going to be able to not make those choices. And there's a whole lot of other tips and techniques applicable to different areas of life. But I think the thing they all have in common is just gently pushing you towards facing the way that things are with regard to time instead of thinking that they might, there might be a, an escape hatch. Right, and in fact, you use the phrase of deciding what to neglect, which is a bit jarring for, for many of us, because we're you know, trying to keep it all going. And of course, 
when you are neglecting things often, that means inevitably disappointing people. And obviously there are limits to those disappointments. I mean, ultimately you might lose your job. <laughs> but, but you're saying that neglect, choosing to neglect things is actually central to managing to function and make the decisions about what really matters to you in a finite life, in a limited life. How should we think about neglect? Well, I think the really important thing I want to say about this is it's not like it's choosing what to neglect. That's very important. But it's not choosing whether or not to neglect some things because pretty much central to, I think, both the human condition and to the culture that we're in now, especially technologically and for all sorts of other reasons, um, neglecting some important things is an inevitable, it's, it's an, a given of the situation, right? Um, there, firstly, it's just true that always has been true that to do any one thing with your time is automatically to decide not to do a thousand other things. That, that's, just, that's just unavoidable. And then more and more, for various different reasons, you know, I think we feel ever greater amounts of obligation and also ever greater numbers of promising opportunities. Um, so finding time for everything that matters is not going to be doable because the definition of what matters keeps, keeps expanding. So neglecting stuff is a given. And I think what I'm talking about when I talk about you know, the need to become better at procrastination is about accepting that, but then in that more conscious state, really asking what, what you know, given that something has, something's got to give, what, what, what should it be? And, you know, I'm not recommending being a jerk and, and, and refusing to keep commitments to anybody, although for people who are sort of people pleasers, becoming a little bit more of a jerk may be ex exactly what they need. It, it's really just a question of seeing that there is this lack of fit, that even to be a good friend, say, and to fulfill the obligations that come with friendship, you may need to decide that certain other friendships are just not going to get your time. You're just not going to, you're not going to put the effort in because you have to concentrate your effort. Even to be a wonderfully committed um, activist citizen, you might need to decide that, you know, climate change is going to be your, your issue and therefore other forms of, you know, economic inequality or something are not going to be your issue. You're not going to give money to those charities. You're not going to give your time to those charities because you're going to focus. Um, because we have to focus, otherwise we're just sort of in this state of being constantly distributing our attention among more things than, uh, than is feasible. And likewise, you know, you mentioned, you know, you might you have to do certain things other, otherwise you'll get fired. If that's a true assessment of your, of your situation, that you have to do some things that you don't uh, consider meaningful because then you would get fired and keeping this job is essential to the things you're trying to do at this point in the circumstance that you're in, feed your family, uh, you know, uh, live in the place that you're, that you're living. In a way, you know, then you've imbued it with meaning by making that, by, by seeing that connection. I don't mean, and therefore it's okay that we live in a society that makes people work in dispiriting jobs. That's a separate question. But you have, in a sort of individual way, figured out the why for why you're doing something that seemed meaningless. In other words, you've worked out the goals in your life that it's the best way to reach at the moment. And I think then by definition, it's not completely meaningless because you've made a choice, not one that you maybe would have chosen to make, <laughs> uh, but you ha have made the choice nonetheless in the situation where something had to, something had to give. COVID has, of course, upended all of our lives and in different ways. For some people, it's meant more work and more stressful work. For other people, it has meant a disconnection from a lot of the relationships and obligations of life prior to COVID. And I wonder if you think that having this sort of pause especially during the kind of lockdown time, on various different obligations and commitments that people felt they needed to make, or just the ways they were living their lives. Do you think that after COVID wanes, 
if that will have a lasting impact or or do you think that it is too easy for us to just go back to what we're used to? I mean, I think you have to work at it. I think epiphanies like that, and I think people have had epiphanies, not mainly that they enjoyed being on lockdown. I, I, I don't think that's a particularly common perspective, but certainly that they enjoyed certain things that they were obliged to do as a result of being on lockdown, being home more, or that they missed more intensely certain things that they didn't realize they were going to miss, um, or just that you see all this death and suffering and bereavement around you and you think, okay, I, I've got to quit this job and take a risk with something that I want to do more because like, if not now, when am I going to do it? And there's been plenty of reports there about people at different rungs of the economic ladder, um, you know, walking away from from jobs that they'd previously tolerated. Those people, I guess, have made a jump and therefore their lives will be different uh, as we stumble out of, of the pandemic. People who are just sort of wanting to hold on to a changed perspective and a new sense of valuing what's important in life. Yeah, I think, firstly, I think you shouldn't expect it to be easy. You shouldn't expect perspective shifts to, to stay. You should... And then you should um, ask yourself what what um, what sort of concrete practices and habits, on a very modest level, can uh, can sort of work away, like you know, raindrops eroding a rock, on um, on our the, the assumptions and and the the societal assumptions that we brought into this. Um, one thing I try to do in my own life, for example, I feel like one of the experiences of quarantine and lockdown and the pandemic in general here in in uh, Brooklyn, New York, was to, um, I was thinking about my neighbours more. I'm not, you know, I don't mean that I was some great bastion of, of uh, generosity and philanthropy, but they were, people are, we were in each other's lives more, even while we were shut away, because, you know, you're more likely to be on your block and see people sitting on their stoops. And we were coming out and beginning to applaud the emergency workers and we were wondering and checking in on the elderly person at the top of the block and all this kind of stuff. Now, if I can change my life in a way that makes me 5% more attuned to my neighbours than I was before COVID, I think that needs to be marked a success. I don't think we should fall for the kind of subtler kind of perfectionism that says, um, now I see how I want to be spending my life. And if I don't manage that every hour of the day, uh, it doesn't count. I think we should uh, allow ourselves to be changed in, in very minor ways by this, and that could really be the, the most powerful, positive legacy of this uh, incredibly weird and horrible time. I'd like to end by asking you <laughs> about the very big picture, which is that the book takes us at starting point, the shortness of our lives, as the title suggests. If we're lucky, we may live 4,000 weeks. And you also argue in the book that contrary to our general sense of human history and of civilization, that human existence has been actually quite short and that we might want to embrace this notion of cosmic insignificance, which doesn't sound very promising. It sounds a bit frightening. Why is that notion useful? I think that, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I call it cosmic insignificance therapy because I really want to bring together those, these two concepts in a way that doesn't feel like they're going to go together. But um, I think what's going on there is human civilization relative to the existence of human beings and relative to the existence, especially of the planet or the cosmos, you know, it's all such a blink of an eye. And then here we are as individuals with even less time, uh, even less uh, power, over reality as a whole. Now, firstly, then, I think there is a kind of relief and liberation to be had from seeing that, like, no decision that you're agonizing over about today matters on those scales. And there's something very liberating, I find, in remembering that, uh, especially if you're like me, you're liable to be caught up in thinking that a decision you're facing or something you're trying to do, like, everything depends on it. Well, really, no, very much not everything <laughs> depends on it. Secondly, and I'm working off the, the insights of a philosopher called Ido Landau here, we tend to fall into the trap of defining what would count as a meaningful life 
using standards that are quite inappropriate to our insignificant little situation. So you start to believe, or the culture starts to believe, that really being extraordinary, being going down in history, being as remembered on a historical and planetary level as William Shakespeare will be, or something like that, somehow this is the pinnacle of meaning, because it matters beyond you, it matters off into the deep future. And there's a lot to be said, I think, for bringing our ambitions back down to size, for seeing that all sorts of things we may already be doing are absolutely a form of meaningful life. You know, cooking meals for a partner or for a child, you know, tending a garden, um, doing work that improves the conditions of a handful of people uh, in your immediate zone of cosmic history. I mean, these things only don't count if your bar is set so high that, um, you know, no human or almost no human could ever could ever reach it. And then people want to sometimes say in response to that, well, what about sort of climate change and what about saving the world from destruction? And then even there, I would say, you know, yes, these are big grand things. It does matter now what we as a society do for the survival of our civilizations into the future. But your individual contribution it would be very useful, I think, if you could not think to yourself, well, it's pointless to do anything unless I can be confident that I'm really part of a really, uh, you know, um, decisive change here. Because that's exactly the kind of attitude and the sort of overly high bar for making an impact on the universe, I think, that causes people to become passive and despairing. And there should not be, you know, we should not have a definition of a meaningful life that makes doing a couple of hours shift at your community garden into a waste of time or, you know, going around and checking in on a, on an elderly relative or, uh, something like that. We, we, I, if, if a meaningful life can't include those things by definition, then we've, we've gone wrong somewhere. Oliver Berkman, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Oliver Bergman is the author of 4,000 Weeks, Time Management for Mortals, which is published by Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux at againstthegrain.org. You can find a link to that book. He is an award-winning writer and also the author of The Antidote, Happiness for People Who Can't Stand Positive Thinking. You've been listening to Against the Grain. I'm Sasha Lilly. Thanks so much for listening, and please tune in again next time. Mm-hmm.